Welcome to this weekly audio digest edition of the Herald Scotland. From Thursday the 18th to Thursday the 25th of April 2019. Read by volunteers at Q&A Review, Prince Speaking to the Blind, at our studios in the Bishop Briggs Media Centre. The headlines in part one. Stuart Fisher, if Rangers and Celtic can pick and choose their referees, then why not come on it? Public health scandal after Buses Snub Pollution Fund campaigners say... Nick Roger, golf show goes on after the Tiger show. Queen's advice should have applied to the EU vote. Jonathan Shafi, independence movement must fight corporate interests. Oil price hits high for a year as US raises pressure on Iran. SNP under fire of a fall in college staff numbers... Edinburgh parkour video helps first youth tourism push reach 5 million. PFA Team of the Year, Man City and Liverpool dominate lineup. The Herald Scotland, Sport, recorded on the 25th of April 2019. Stuart Fisher, if Rangers and Celtic can pick and choose their referees, then why not Kilmarnock? By Chief Sports Writer Stuart Fisher. Say what you like about Stephen McLean, Steve Clark just did, but he isn't afraid to make the tough decisions. I know this because the underfire whistler once awarded a soft penalty in my favour in a media match for the Scottish Football Writers Association against the SFA. Referees are asked to make decisions without fear or favour, but they would only be human if their ramifications flash before their eyes from time to time. Exactly what thoughts were running through the mind of McLean when he presided over Kilmarnock's rancorous home encounter with Aberdeen on Saturday remain unclear, but for Clark, at least, the fact that his father Stuart called this ground his home for 16 years placed him in an awkward situation. Like a father subconsciously tougher on his son when refereeing down the park, the inference was that McLean was trying too hard to distance himself from allegations of bias and had consequently left himself wide open to them. Since I've been here, he's always seemed to struggle with Kilmarnock games, said Clark, of a referee who studiously avoided officiating matches played in by his brother Brian, a professional footballer for many years. Maybe, or definitely, that's because his father was a player here for so many years. I've mentioned privately that maybe Stephen shouldn't referee Kilmarnock games just to take that burden, that extra pressure off him. Now I'm saying it publicly. By the close of play today, Clark will learn whether he will face disciplinary action for those comments, with fast-track tribunal hearings scheduled for tomorrow as the club endeavour to overturn the dismissals of Kirk Broadfoot and Rory McKenzie. It takes some creative thinking to look at the stats and find evidence pointing to any vendetta, involuntary or otherwise, towards his old man's former club. While you could look at the three home matches he has presided over this season, all of which have ended in defeat. They have won two and drawn one of the three away games, but regardless of the rights and wrongs, Clark's comments have reopened a Pandora's box, which John Fleming, the SFA referee's boss, will find hard to close again. Because, let's face it, every team has them, referees who, for whatever reason, bring a baggage to the proceedings which evokes a feeling of dread, and, perhaps aware of the negative PR around the refereeing operation at times this season, there appears to be an increasing correlation between this background noise and their appointment schedule. 
Wherever McLean at Kilmarnock, for instance, there is a Craig Thompson at Motherwell, who the fans castigate for sending off five of their players last season, including the dismissal of Cedric Kipre in last year's Betfred Cup final. His popularity in Lanarkshire hasn't increased in the two times he has refereed them this season, both times against Rangers. The 7-1 defeat at Ibrox earlier in the season saw Carl McHugh sent off and Stephen Robinson sent to the stand. Then there are the strange goings-on relating to certain officials in Celtic and Rangers. Willie Collum has refereed Rangers just twice this season and has done little to endear himself to Stephen Gerrard or the club's fans. Publicly criticised by Stephen Gerrard for the non-award of a fill by Tom Rogic on Ryan Jack in the lead-up to Oliver Nitcham's only goal the first Old Firm game of the season. The official drew the ire of Gerrard again for the controversial dismissal of Daniel Candias in a 2-0 win at St Mirren for the apparent crime of blowing a kiss at an opponent. Cullum hasn't refereed the Ibrox club since a withering Ibrox statement about underlying issues. Then there is John Beaton, who hasn't refereed Celtic since they spoke of their surprise about his failure to take action against Alfredo Morelos for three separate misdemeanours by the Colombian during the 1-0 Old Firm defeat at Ibrox in December. Can he scheduling to take certain officials out of the firing line or pandering to the lowest common denominator is certainly made for a busy February-slash-March period for Bobby Madden, who refereed Celtic and Rangers three times during the period, including the old run match, as well as Aberdeen twice. Clearly, the SFA cannot allow clubs to handpick who referees their matches, but does it any wonder Clark should give it a try if both Glasgow Giants can get away with it? By Chief Sports Writer Stuart Fisher. Ben Hemold, 18th of April 2019. Scotland faces public health scandal after Bus and Snub Pollution Fund campaigners say just £1.1 million of a £7.89 million pot dedicated to helping slash emissions was allocated in the last financial year, sparking concerns not enough has been done to combat pollution. The Bus Emissions Admin Retrofit BEAR programme provided cash for 42 buses to be converted to the Euro Emissions Standard in 2017-2018, with a funding of 84 funded last year. But campaigners said 450 buses could have been cleaned up if all the money was spent and blamed a standoff between private operators and the Scottish Government over costs. Gavin Thompson, an air pollution campaigner for Friends of Earth Scotland, said this is a public health scandal. Scotland's cities have a legal toxic level of air pollution. Oddler diesel buses are a big part of a pollution problem. We need to modernise our bus fleet as soon as possible, in a standoff between the government and the private bus operators. There is only one loser for people. It seems that some bus companies have no problem with profiting from older buses that continue to bleach out toxic fumes on our streets. These companies are putting profit before human health. He insisted buses are a key part of the solution for improving air quality and reducing climate pollution, but added some bus companies clearly fail to grasp the urgency of the pollution problem, seemingly happy to wait another year and use public health as a bargaining chip as they demand more money from the Scottish Government. The BEAR programme was launched by the Scottish Government to help bus operators shoulder the financial costs associated with fitting older buses with new exhaust systems. Bus companies can apply for the funding to help reduce harmful pollution and protect public health. But despite a £7.89 million of funding being available, 
Only around £1 million was awarded to seven operators, including Edinburgh-based Lawfen buses, West Coast Motors and Stagecoach. The unspent cash will be described to the general government spending. Campaigners said it has been anticipated that the money would mostly go towards improving buses in Glasgow, whereas Law Emission Zone, LEZ, was introduced at the start of the year. However, bus operators insist the funding only covers 40% of their upgrade costs. Andrew Jarvis, Managing Director of First Glasgow, Glasgow's largest operator, said it was actively engaging with the Scottish Government at the moment to share our concerns over the viability of the scheme, especially given comparative retrofit schemes in other European countries. He said, if we have to pay the difference between 40% and 100% of the actual cost, then our only choice is for our customers to pay for them as part of the prices they pay for their fares. This is a scenario where we are reluctant to put into reality. He said the firm had applied for funding to retrofit 10 major engine system reworks and was bitterly disappointed when he did not secure this. He added, we have just completed a £30 million investment programme to introduce 150 brand new or ultra-low emission vehicles for Greater Glasgow. So we have shown our clear commitment to improving air quality within the towns and cities in which we operate. If you are blind or partially sighted, or know somebody who is, they may be eligible to receive a BWBF Sonata Plus internet radio, where our daily podcasts are available. To qualify for a free permanent loan from BWBF, you need to be resident in the UK, registered blind or partially sighted, over the age of 8, and in receipt of a means-tested benefit, or have a parent or guardian in receipt if you are under 18. If you think you qualify, you can find your local agent at www.blind.org.uk and remember, when setting up the player, ask for the Cue and Review channels. Now, back to the main programme. Nick Roger. Golf show goes on after the Tiger show. An article by Nick Roger, golf correspondent, published in the Herald Scotland of Tuesday the 23rd of April 2019. The modern world is hectic. So hectic, in fact, it seems that we have decided to accelerate past spring and hurtle straight into the height of summer. Near cast a clute, maybe ut? Saw that. Who needs a transitional period of gradually warming temperatures which would perhaps see you tentatively discarding the simits or long johns over the course of a few weeks when you can just suddenly fling off the layers in wild instant abandon and strip to the bare essentials and beyond with all the panting gusto of Caligula preparing to host one of his more salacious writhing social gatherings? Of course, in this meteorological minefield of a country, crushing deflation on the weather front is never far away. By the time you've grumbled the phrase, there's an area of low pressure moving in from the west, the clutes that you'd hastily cast out will probably be getting looked out again, and we won't see a nice spell until September. Talking of a sense of anticlimax, it's been a bit like this in the world of golf over the past week. Seven days ago, just about the entire population of the planet was still in a state of overwhelmed rapture in the wake of Tiger Woods' Masters win. 
golf itself seemed so euphorically giddy it was like it had just gulped down half a bottle of Prosecco on an empty stomach. It was perhaps inevitable then that there would be something of a hangover. One of the best things about this great game is that anybody can become a somebody on any given week on the tour. C.T. Pan was 111th on the world rankings going into the RBC Heritage at the weekend. Come Sunday night, the Taiwanese had captured his first first PGA Tour title and had slipped into one of golf's most hideous jackets. Dustin Johnson's final round collapse, meanwhile, once again illustrated the wonderfully humbling quirks and absurdities of this volatile pursuit. Leading by a stroke overnight, the world number one sagged to a quite ruinous inward half that was strewn with the kind of filthy debris you'd get after the Lord Mayor's show. Rather like his calamitous 82 when leading after 54 holes of the 2010 US Open, or his chaotic 77 when holding a six-shot lead on the final day of the WGC HSBC Champions event in 2017. Johnson's error-ridden 77 on Sunday saw his title tilt rent asunder in head-scratching wretchedness. As the decorated amateur of yore, Horace Hutchinson once observed, if profanity had an influence the flight of the ball, the game of golf would be played far better than it is. DJ clearly needs to work on his cursing. As for CT, well, given that he required just 47 putts over the last two rounds, perhaps he was coaxing the ball with regular encouraging bursts of get in the effing hole. Girl power, as Babnik adds to teenage kicks. We're all potential fodder for the limpid tentacles of the ageing process as it slowly coils itself around our ankles before entangling us in its withering embrace. That's an elaborate way of saying I'm 43 next week and golf in the modern era often makes us feel much older than that. The Scottish Girls' Open was won the other week by 15-year-old Hannah Darling. The Helen Holm Scottish Women's Open over the robust Royal Troon links on Sunday was carted off by another 15-year-old in Pia Babnik of Slovenia. Women's golf, both in the junior ranks and on the pro scene, is colourful, charismatic and vibrantly youthful. It's also fiercely competitive. Babnik was a fearless wire-to-wire winner at the weekend and she underlined the daunting strength and depth of global golf at all levels. In this game, you have to find your feet quickly. Rising to the challenge of proven breeding ground, the European Challenge Tour, the second-tier circuit which remains as cutthroat as an argument, in Sweeney Todd's salon, swings back into action this week in Turkey. For Fife's Connor, Syme, it's a chance to earn his stripes again. Syme fast-tracked himself to the main European tour as a rookie by coming through the qualifying school in 2017 and playing full-time at the top table in 2018 before losing his full playing rights. 
Having tasted the high life, the stripped-back, no-frills environment of the Challenge Tour can be a real shock to the system. Many have dropped down a division and struggled to cope with its unforgiving rigours. Syme, who was a runner-up on the European Tour in 2018, has the talent, but the circuit is awash with a wide array of such talent. And as we know, rising from the Challenge Tour requires more than raw talent alone. And another thing... Type golf into a Google News search on the inter-thingamajig and one of the stories that will crop up is the appointment of a female captain at a club in Cardiff. For the first time in 117 years, Radir will have a woman as its captain. Amazingly, the earth has not toppled off its axis. These type of appointments are becoming common, fairly common across the UK and Ireland, but such is the game's history here, they are still treated with point and gop fanfare, which in some ways does little for the negative perceptions of the game. A woman becoming a captain at a golf club shouldn't really generate headlines, it should just be a normal occurrence. Article from Herald Scotland 24th of April, 2019. Letters. Queen's advice should have applied to the EU vote. I do not share the view of James Walker, letters, April 22nd, that the Queen urged the electorate to vote for the Union. She urged people to think very carefully before voting. These are wise words for any election or referendum. I know of some people who thought carefully and decided that Scotland should have become an independent country and voted accordingly, whereas others, even those who agreed with that last sentiment, decided not to vote in favour on the grounds that the proposals of the Scottish Government, as outlined in the white paper Scotland's Future, could not be delivered and voted, as Mr Walker would put it, for the Union. I believe that the Scottish Government organised and conducted a fair referendum on Scottish independence, and that in the main those on all sides of the debate took part in an honest and fair debate. Those campaigning to leave the European Union did not copy the good practice of the Scottish Government, no doubt on the basis that the Scottish independence referendum had been lost on account of the honest way in which the decision to leave the UK had been set out. Consequently, those campaigning to leave the EU did not prepare a definitive statement as to the terms on which the UK might leave the EU, and as a result offered a multitude of different options in response to questions and comments regarding withdrawal. If the Queen's advice of thinking very carefully had been heeded, then more people should have decided to vote to remain in the European Union on the grounds that nobody had a clue as to how the United Kingdom would leave the EU as is all now all too apparent. Sandy Gemmell, 40 Warriston Gardens, Edinburgh. The arrogance of Professor John Kay is amazing. You report that he told a Sunday newspaper that it would be open to question whether you, the Scots, would want to go through the bother of having your own currency. With all due respect to the learned professor, it would not be open to the Scots to choose. If you think Brexit negotiations are tough, wait till the English are on the other side of the table. They owe us nothing. They are perfectly at liberty to let us sink with a banana republic currency with penal interest rates, galloping inflation and restriction on borrowing on international markets. 
If we want to leave, why should they let us lean on the strength of sterling backed by the Bank of England? Nationalists need to face reality. Our fairer socialist society cannot be built on liaison with the tiny EU market at the expense of a hard border between us and our largest market, England. James Campbell, Rubis Law Drive, Bears Den. German MEP Hans-Olaf Henkel of the European Parliament's Conservatives and Reformers has rightly observed that David Cameron's referendum played into the hands of a French establishment which never wanted a semi-detached UK in the EU. When the European Commission appointed veteran French troubleshooter Michel Barnier as chief negotiator, the die was cast. His demand that the UK come up with a solution to the Irish border before a trade agreement was discussed was pure catch-22. Instead of relying on Britain's superb team of professional diplomats to nip this intractable strategy in the bud, Theresa May appointed the three arrogant, ridiculous Brexiters, David Davis, Boris Johnson and Liam Fox, who walked right into the trap. Reverend Dr John Cameron, 10 Howard Place, St Andrews. The cornerstone of Keith Howell's self-pitying grievance is his highlighting of what he regards as a grievance culture within the SNP regarding anything to do with the UK. Letters April the 17th. That merits examination. First, remember Enoch Powell's edict that power devolved is power retained. So from the staff, devolution was not what it was cracked up to be. The economy is a matter retained to Westminster, Yet when Scottish economic figures are disadvantageous, successive Scottish secretaries have challenged successive Holyrood First Ministers about what they are going to do about it. But when the figures are favourable, that was due to the actions of Westminster governments. In the post-war years, they had poured extra money into Scotland to thwart the rise of the SNP. But the much-praised Barnet formula underfunded our block grant from the straight population ratio basis of year-on-year enhancements. Except that the 1979-97 Conservative government put more in than the formula allowed, so our 20% per capita lead remained instead of being reduced to single figures, giving the impression that Barnett was responsible, thus enhancing the case for devolution. Unionist MPs for English constituencies at Westminster, even those born in Scotland, used Scottish questions to ask for how long their voters were going to have to continue to subsidise these jocks from their taxation. When UK welfare measures were implemented, we had imposed on us the so-called bedroom tax, applicable where tenants had a spare room. That was not required here, as traditionally the problem was solved by voluntary exchanges to suit new circumstances. Scottish Conservative leader Ruth Davidson challenged Nicola Sturgeon that if she was not consent to remedy the situation without suggesting how that should be funded. When the SNP raised income tax to cover it, it was met with a torrent of abuse from Ms Davidson's own party for making Scotland the highest tax-paying region in the UK, even though the Conservatives were instrumental in granting Holyrood the extra tax powers in the first place. So, grievances all round. The irony is that it was the ineptness of the unionist parties that effectively handed power over to the SNP. They had lost sight of the direction of travel of politics in Scotland.
If Mr. Howell wishes the return of a unionist-supporting regime at Holyrood, he would be better to write pointing out the error of their ways rather than treat us to the unyielding rhetoric against the SNP and, consequently, against the huge number of voters who have demonstrated that preference. Douglas R. Meyer, 76 Thompson Crescent, Curry, Midlothian. Noting that Ukraine has elected a comedian as their new president, comedian's vow after he wins election in Ukraine, the Herald, April the 22nd, perhaps we should consider nominating a few of our top comics to Parliament. They couldn't be worse than the comedians we have at present. J.W. Frame, 11 Lochside, Bearsden. Q and Review Print Speaking to the Blind are a charity based in Bishop Briggs. We're currently looking to recruit volunteer access to audio ambassadors in Eastern Bartonshire to place leaflets and business cards at businesses, shops and amenities in the area and to show the public how to listen to daily and weekly online articles from the Herald Scotland, Evening Times, The National and Inside Soap magazine for free. If you would like to volunteer and become an access to audio ambassador, please contact Michael Rankin on 0141 772 3976 or email aaatl at qandreview.com. That's aaatl at qandreview.com. In addition, we are also recruiting for volunteer readers and technicians. If you're interested in reading or technically supporting a recording team, please contact us on 0141 772 3976 or email information at qandreview.com. Details of all of our volunteering opportunities are available on our website at qandreview.com. Thank you. Now, back to the main programme. You're listening to the Glasgow Herald on the 25th of April 2019. Opinion. Jonathan Shafi. Independence movement must fight corporate interests. By Jonathan Shafi. In the months running up to September the 18th, 2014, I received a phone mail from an independence campaigner in Easterhouse. At the time, I was helping to coordinate mass canvases through the Radical Independence Campaign. As part of the campaign, we organised a voter registrations drive. I've never seen anything like this, said the message. We have a queue at a stall of people wanting to register. It was at that moment I realised that something profound was happening in Scotland. If you study areas of low voter turnout, it is no surprise that, that these are cluttered around constituencies that have been carved out of the political system. What is the point in voting when you don't feel that your interests are being represented? But in 2014 that changed. Many who had never voted before realised there was an opportunity for change and that this vote would count like never before. We distilled this into a simple message, that it would be the housing schemes of Scotland, not the playing fields of Eton, that would determine the future. Yes, Scotland couldn't keep track of the groups being set up, or of the activities taking place. It blossomed into a full-blown movement that laid down lasting roots. People did not ask for permission to act. We shook a failed establishment to the core. I am not in favour of rerunning the 2014 campaign, even if we tried to, the context has dramatically changed, but this does not mean handing the soul of the independence movement to the corporate body. Instead, we have to build a platform that can deliver transformational social and economic change at a time when the whole of Western politics is in crisis. 
That crisis has material roots. It comes from economic inequality, from the battle scars of austerity and from the arrogance of elites who have seen their wealth grow while millions have had their living standards trampled on from above. Once people have found their voice, they don't want to lose it. I always viewed the mass joining of the SNP as admirable for this reason. No longer would people sit on the sidelines. A hundred thousand people joined as a way of keeping independence alive. The 2015 general election campaign reflected this radical intent, railing against austerity, foreign dependence and in direct opposition to the Westminster establishment. But what has happened since is a lesson for all movements. Despite weak opposition and enjoying near-absolute political hegemony, notions of radical reform under devolution were quietly buried. Lacking on land reform, conservative on scrapping the council tax and standardised testing are just a few examples. The message, don't rock the boat. It was unsurprising then that Nicholas Sturgeon selected Andrew Wilson, a founder of Charlotte Street Partners, Scotland's premier corporate lobbyists, to draw up the economic programme. It was equally unsurprising that the Growth Commission read like something from a Blairite handbook. Gone were aspirations of true economic justice. Back we went to deficit reduction. Financial regulation would mirror the UK. We wouldn't control our own monetary policy. Flexi-work would provide cover for our retrenchment of precarious work practices. And despite the First Minister's call for a Scottish Green Deal, the Growth Commission doctrine is an obstacle to such a policy. I admire Andrew Wilson for his honesty when he alludes to the softest possible independence. Hard economic power will stay exactly where it is, with financial elites, the bankers and the orthodoxies that have consigned so many to poverty. The Growth Commission would become the negotiating position and the foundation for a new state, hardwiring neoliberalism into the process from the start. What we have witnessed is a combination of top-down party management, corporate lobbying and a careful dangling of the independence carrot to push through a transfer of power from the mass independence movement to a handful of advisers, careerist politicians and lobbyists. A far cry from Peter Murrell's email to new members urging a people's force for change at the end of 2014. I have been outspoken in relation to the SNP leadership but have never once attacked the independence movement. It is thanks to this movement and the great demonstrations that independence has been kept afloat. Alongside the committed network of yes activists across the country, I have no doubt that this movement will once again rise to the occasion and that we will indeed achieve independence thanks to their tenacity. But to do that, all of us have to have the courage to challenge leadership positions when the stakes are so high. In debates on this question, I'm often told that independence comes first, then we can change society. But as I write, the process itself is being captured by corporate interests. Another Scotland is possible, but not with the Growth Commission. This article by Jonathan Chafee. Remember, this weekly digest programme is just a selection of what we produce. You can access more daily content online for free at qandreview.com forward slash free podcasts. For free daily podcasts of the Herald Scotland and Evening Times and weekly digests of the National and Inside Soap magazine. 
Alternatively, you can access all of these services via a BWBF Sonata Plus internet radio player. Now, back to the main programme. The Herald Scotland, business, recorded on the 24th of April 2019. Oil price hits high for a year as US raises pressure on Iran. By Group Business Correspondent Mark Williamson. The crude price has risen to a high for the year following the US decision to tighten sanctions on Iran in a development which could encourage firms to invest in the North Sea. Brent crude rose to $74.70 per barrel yesterday after the US said on Monday that all countries must stop importing oil from Iran on May 2nd. The Trump administration has decided not to renew waivers from curbs on imports that were granted to eight countries, including China, Japan and Turkey. The move to increase pressure on Iran is expected to support the crude price amid concerns about the potential for disruption to supplies from other important oil-producing countries that are facing challenges. Amid seasonally higher oil demand into the summer, the oil market is likely to be very sensitive to any further disruptions in Libya, Venezuela or Nigeria said Giovanni Stonovo at UBS. The investment bank expects Brent to trade in the $70 BBL to $80 BBL range this quarter. The result of the sanctions move will be studied with interest in the North Sea as the industry in the area emerges from the deep downturn triggered by the crude price plunge from 2014 to early 2016. Brent rose to a four-year high of $85 BBL in October, following moves by major exporters led by Saudi to curb production to support the markets. However, the price fell below $55 BBL in December amid booming production in the US shale fields. The oil price may remain volatile as countries look to protect their own interests. Bjorn Shieldrop, chief commodities analyst at Nordic Banking Group, SEB, noted that China has strongly opposed the US sanctions on Iran and could even increase imports from the country. He said Russia had made clear that it was not keen to hold the oil price much above $65 BBL for fear of boosting shale oil investments and production. By Group Business Correspondent Mark Williamson The Herald, 18th of April 2019 S&P on defile of a fall in college staff numbers Figures from the Scottish Funding Council show there are 12,653 full-time equivalent FTE employees at college across the country in 2007-2008. However, by 2017-2018, the number had dropped to 10,942, a decline of 1,711 staff. For statistics, also saw the number of FTEs teaching staff fell over the same period down by 12.7%, from 6,312 to 5,512. Labour's education spokesman Ian Gray claimed the figures highlight a failure by the SNPs within Scotland further education sector. He said college are key to jobs and growth, not to mention an important role to widen access to opportunities for disadvantaged young people. Since the SNP took power and their subsequent botched regional nationalisation of the sector, further education in Scotland has suffered. Colleges have faced underinvestment, students have seen their numbers plummet by 1,200 and numbers staff have also declined. What's more, staff and students are working in buildings in needs of repairs tolling hundreds of millions of pounds. 
Hardworking lecturers are now also engaged in industrial action over the cost of living pay rise to which they are entitled. Far too long, further education has seen the SNP as a poor relation, and that must end. A Scottish Government spokeswoman said since colleges' regional nationalisation in 2013, college lecturer headcount figures have increased by 400, and full-time equivalent FTE have increased by 100. We continue to support the college sector through significant capital revenue investment. Since 2007, we have invested more than £6 billion into Scotland's colleges. Edinburgh parkour video helps first youth tourism push reach 5 million. An exclusive by Brian Donnelly, business correspondent, published in the Herald Scotland of Tuesday the 23rd of April 2019. A digital campaign profiling Edinburgh as a top youth tourism destination has reached almost 5 million people across the world. Uncover Edinburgh, which received a £40,000 growth fund award from Visit Scotland, had a total reach of 4.9 million across various social channels. The push, led by Youth Travel Edinburgh and supported by the Edinburgh Tourism Action Group and Marketing Edinburgh, encouraged visitors aged 18 to 26 from key European markets to come to Scotland's capital on a year-round basis by pairing an Edinburgh influencer with another with similar special interests from cities like Barcelona, Paris and Amsterdam. The campaign brought 10 pairs of influencers to Edinburgh who collectively created over 200 pieces of content. Highlights included a video from parkour athletes Alec Schauer from Austria and Scott, Robbie Griffith, which reached over 431,000 people. The architect and renowned photographer Nicanor Garcia's Instagram story was another highlight, which had an organic reach of over 200,000. The campaign brought together many from Edinburgh's tourism industry and digital assets highlighting Edinburgh's tourism offering for young people were created for businesses to use on social media. Some 45 GIFs were made and downloaded by 74 different businesses. The campaign was Edinburgh's first destination-led campaign aimed at young visitors. Youth travel is the fastest-growing segment of global tourism and Edinburgh is second only to London for young visitors to the UK. By promoting Edinburgh as a year-round destination, the campaign supported the Edinburgh 2020 Tourism Strategy, which calls for growth in the visitor economy of 3% per annum and prioritises stimulating this growth in the October to March period. The campaign, using Scotland's 2018 Year of Young People as a platform, showcased as much of the city as possible. Music lovers were filmed in a recording studio in Leith, while the parkour video showed athletes race from South Queen's Ferry and Leith to the Market Cross. Pete Duncan, 
Chair of Youth Travel Edinburgh, said, We wanted a very different campaign to present specific aspects of Edinburgh to the growing youth market, a target audience that lives and breathes social media. We chose Instagrammers, bloggers and YouTubers with a niche following in interests like vintage fashion, music, Harry Potter and parkour. Both hosts and guests loved the city. As well as the direct interest from their followers during 2018, we've created long-term advocates for the capital. Paula Ward, Visit Scotland Regional Leadership Director, said... Hash Uncover Edinburgh has been a huge success in showcasing Edinburgh to visitors across the world as a top year-round destination for young people. Digital partnership initiatives like this are what Visit Scotland's Growth Fund is all about. We want to champion collaboration, spearhead digital innovation and make sure every part of Scotland makes the most of its remarkable tourism offering and understands its ripple effect of success, well-being and prosperity. Youth Travel Edinburgh is a 100-plus strong business group for tour operators in the tourism sector in Edinburgh, with a particular interest in the youth market. It is constituted and chaired by Pete Duncan of Radical Travel and represented on the Edinburgh Tourism Action Group and Hash Uncover Edinburgh was their first marketing campaign. The Visit Scotland Growth Fund supports collaborative tourism marketing projects which focus on growth and ensure that visitors experience the best of Scotland. To be eligible, applicants must place a strong emphasis on digital marketing and the creation of digital content assets. The Herald Scotland Sport, recorded on the 25th of April 2019. PFA Team of the Year, Man City and Liverpool dominate lineup by digital journalist James Kearney. The English Premier League Team of the Year has been announced with Liverpool and Manchester City dominating the team sheet. Ten of the 11 players selected by their peers play for the two sides involved in the title race, while Manchester United's Paul Pogba has also made the cut. Scotland captain Andy Robertson was chosen as the league's best left-back this season by digital journalist James Kearney. That's the end of part one. After the break, we'll be coming back with more great articles from the Herald Scotland. Visually impaired people are being invited to see if they are eligible for a free, specially adapted radio from a charity. The British Wireless for the Blind Fund, BWBF, provides the equipment to those with sight loss around the UK who meet its criteria. Radio is a lifeline to those who are blind and partially sighted, providing companionship and helping them to keep in touch with what's going on in the world, as well as in the local community. BWBF offers equipment free of charge to those who have sight loss and are in receipt of a means-tested benefit. BWBF is launching its Reaching Out campaign to try and increase awareness about their equipment and help more people who are blind and partially sighted. Our regional development manager, Sophie Weldon, said, Our radios are designed so that a person with sight loss can use them easily and independently. All equipment is delivered to the home by a volunteer who sets it all up and provides support in using it. We offer a range of equipment, digital radios, CD players, memory stick players, internet radio and even a specially designed app. Our radios are vital to someone who cannot see. They provide news, information and entertainment, 
but also, more importantly, companionship and a friendly service. If you or someone you know is interested in a BWBF radio, please contact Sophie Weldon at sophie at blind.org.uk. That is S-O-P-H-I-E at B-L-I-N-D dot org dot UK or phone 01283-790-208. That's 01283-790-208 or on 07540-724-063. That is 07540-724-063. To find out more about the British Wireless for the Blind Fund, follow us on Twitter at British Wireless, like us on Facebook, or go to blind.org.uk. Now, back to the main programme. Welcome back. The headlines in part two. Neil Mackay. Why we must not wash our hands of Northern Ireland's dirty war. Celtic legend Billy McNeil dies aged 79. Amber Retail Park sold amid tough times on High Street. Scottish teachers teaching free courses at the same time. Scottish gun crime falls to record low. Obituary. Cecilia McEwen. Scottish aristocrat known for charity work in Thailand and Bosnia. Immediate threat to Theresa May's premiership lifted. Almost half of major Scottish infrastructure deals delayed. Voices for Scotland. Civic group to launch to help boost support for Scottish independence. Scotland faces a £1 billion bill to send rubbish to England and overseas after landfill ban. Article from Herald Scotland, 23rd of April 2019, Opinion. Neil Mackay, why we must not wash our hands of Northern Ireland's dirty war. There was a glimmer of hope at the weekend that justice may have a chance of prevailing when it comes to the dirty war in Northern Ireland. I wrote a front-page investigation for the Herald on Sunday detailing plans for the high-ranking Scottish soldier Brigadier Gordon Kerr to be questioned under caution by detectives working for Operation Kenova, investigating collusion, murder, torture and kidnap during the Troubles. Kerr rang the Force Research Unit, FRU, the wing of British military intelligence which handled double agents inside the IRA and loyalist paramilitary gangs. The most infamous FRU agent was Steakknife, the British Army's highest-placed mole inside the IRA. I named Freddy Scapatici as the Steakknife back in 2003. Three years earlier, I named Kerr, who is from Aberdeen, as the head of the FRU. Canova detectives are investigating the role of Steakknife and arrested Scapatici last year, later releasing him on bail. Scapatici denies he is Steakknife. The simple truth about the dirty war in Ulster is that double agents working for the British security forces were allowed to continue operating as terrorists in order to keep their cover. That meant IRA or UVF volunteers carried out acts of terror, including murder, with the knowledge of their handlers, military intelligence officers running them as informers. Agents were also sometimes used as proxies, with handlers passing the material and intelligence which aided them in setting up assassinations seen as useful to British interests. As a result, British security forces colluded with terrorists in murder. That is the bottom-line allegation at the centre of all dirty war investigations. 
Dozens of murders are thought to be connected, many involving innocent civilians not linked to terrorism. It has long troubled me that information of such import does not dominate the news agenda, nor is it the subject of great debate in Parliament or a matter of overt public disgust and anger. To me, the dirty war is a greater outrage to decency, democracy and the rule of law than even atrocities such as Bloody Sunday or shameful, disgraceful episodes such as the murder of Stephen Lawrence. The dirty war was a slow, deliberate, calculated policy which saw soldiers collude with terrorists in the deaths of British citizens. And it all had political oversight. That's the most terrible fact. It is hard to believe that various Northern Ireland secretaries, defence secretaries and prime ministers were unaware of what was going on. Handlers were taking orders from their commanding officers and these officers were reporting back to London. Numerous military intelligence sources have told me in the past that they were sure details of agents such as steak knife made it all the way to number 10. That's why yesterday's story about Kerr being questioned by the Canova team is so important. Without him being spoken to, there can be no truth. Only Kerr can explain the political involvement. If it is shocking to contemplate soldiers and terrorists colluding in murder, think what it means if politicians knew of such operations or even authorised them. The dirty war, to me, has always eaten into the very heart of British democracy, and it remains a toxin in the bloodstream of the body politic, every bit as virulent as the lies and manipulations used to take us to war in Iraq. However, most of the revelations about the dirty war started to appear after the peace process in Northern Ireland took hold. Such information was an uncomfortable truth which few wished to discuss at a time when hope beckoned. It was easier to look away. There was also Northern Ireland fatigue. People just wanted to forget 30 years of violence and embrace what the Good Friday Agreement offered, a chance at normality. Then September the 11th came. The world changed and the dirty war moved to the sidelines of history. The activities of soldiers in Belfast in the 1980s and 1990s seemed distant when compared to Islamist terror and what troops were up to in Afghanistan and Iraq. Dogged reporting, however, eventually led to the establishment of Operation Canova, run by the Chief Constable of Bedfordshire, John Butcher. The Canova team seemed determined to bring justice and truth to the fore, and the planned interview with Kerr is to be welcomed as a huge step forward. Previous Ulster collusion inquiries, such as ones led by Sir John Stevens, Metropolitan Police Commissioner, were hampered and obstructed. It's even believed the offices of the Stevens inquiry were torched by a team connected to the FRU. However, there is every chance that Kerr will refuse to cooperate. He has no reason or obligation to answer any questions under caution. Many fear that Canova will eventually be wound down with no progress made. Former MI5 agent Willie Carlin, who infiltrated the Republican movement, told me, We've heard things like, Soldier F will be charged over Bloody Sunday. And that is all very well, but the dirty war is a can of worms which no one wants opened. Certainly, a court case centred on the dirty war could reveal details that are potentially fatal to how we see our democracy. The Republican movement would welcome any exposure just as little as the British Army.
If the IRA ever admitted that agents like Steak Knife existed, they would be admitting that the organisation was penetrated to the hilt by Britain and basically a plaything of military intelligence. And that, after all, was the intention of the FRU, to control its enemy, in this case the IRA, in order to beat its enemy. Steak Knife's handler once told me many years ago that they viewed the spy game in Ulster as a game of chess. It's like the IRA and the UVF are playing, and we walk into the room, turn off all the lights and move all their pieces to the end game we want, cease fire. We're now at a crossroads. Progress seems made in terms of police preparing to interview Kerr, but whether anything comes from that interview, we must wait and see. However, this much is true. There can be no justice for victims' families and no trust in the way British democracy operates unless the truth is eventually brought to light about what military intelligence was doing in Northern Ireland during the Dirty War. Celtic legend Billy McNeil dies aged 79 by James Kearney, digital journalist, published in the Herald Scotland of Tuesday the 23rd of April 2019. Celtic legend Billy McNeil has died at the age of 79. The former captain passed away late yesterday evening surrounded by his family and friends following a prolonged battle with dementia. McNeil, nicknamed Cesar by his teammates, captained Celtic's European Cup winning side in 1967 and was voted the club's greatest ever captain by supporters. McNeil became the first British player to lift the European Cup after captaining Jock Stein's famous Lisbon Lions side to a 2-1 victory over Inter Milan. McNeil's 790 competitive appearances for Celtic is a club record with the defender featuring for the Parkhead Club between 1957 and 1975. Remarkably, McNeil played every minute of every game he played in and was never substituted for the club. The former Celtic defender later returned to the club for two separate spells as manager and a statue of McNeil was erected outside Celtic Park in 2015. McNeil was recently awarded Athletic Bilbao's prestigious One Club Man Award for his dedicated service to Celtic, whose previous recipients include AC Milan's Paolo Maldini, Barcelona defender Carol Puyol and Bayern Munich's Sepp Meyer. Speaking after the award announcement was made, Celtic Chief Executive Peter Lowell said... I have had the genuine honour and privilege of knowing Billy for so many years now and he is someone who always set the highest of examples with his values of family, respect and humility. He is rightly revered as a true Celtic great and he will always be one of our favourite sons, a special player and a very special man. Billy will always be one of European football's major figures. He has given such a huge part of his life to Celtic and for that we will forever be grateful and we forever hold him in such high esteem. McNeil's family released the following statement. It is with great sadness that we announce the death of our father, Billy McNeil. He passed away late last night, 
Monday, April the 22nd, surrounded by his family and loved ones. He suffered from dementia for a number of years and fought bravely to the end, showing the strength and fortitude he always has done throughout his life. We would also like to note our love and appreciation to our mother, Liz, for the care, devotion and love she gave to our father throughout his illness. No one could have done any more. Whilst this is a very sad time for all the family and we know our privacy will be respected, our father always made time for the supporters, so please tell his stories, sing his songs and help us celebrate his life. More to follow. If you are blind or partially sighted, or know somebody who is, they may be eligible to receive a BWBF Sonata Plus internet radio, where our daily podcasts are available. To qualify for a free permanent loan from BWBF, you need to be resident in the UK, registered blind or partially sighted, over the age of 8, and in receipt of a means-tested benefit, or have a parent or guardian in receipt if you are under 18. If you think you qualify, you can find your local agent at www.blind.org.uk and remember, when setting up the player, ask for the Cue and Review channels. Now, back to the main programme. The Herald Scotland. Business. Recorded on the 24th of April, 2019. Edinburgh Retail Park sold amid tough times on High Street by Group Business Correspondent Mark Williamson. A retail park in Edinburgh has been sold to London-based investors in a deal that reflects confidence in the long-term prospects for the market amid tough times for some stores groups. Danobe Securities brought Craig Entenay Retail Park for £3.35 million after a sale process, which advisors said attracted competitive bids. Jamie Fain of the Galbraith Property Consultancy said the asset attracted a lot of attention due to factors such as its prominent location in the Seafield area of Edinburgh. He said the deal provided a clear example of continued investor appetite for well-presented and sensibly priced retail investments. The park is led to Halfords, Archer's Sleep Centre, Connection Flooring and Sue Rider, with an average unexpired lease term of 10.2 years. It generates annual rental income totalling around £278,500. The Nobe Securities acquired the Kegentine Retail Park from a client of Cedarwood Asset Management. Cedarwood announced the purchase of the asset for £2.9 million in October 2015. The rise of internet shopping has posed big challenges for retailers on the country's high streets. Operating on retail parks may allow retailers to achieve cost savings while benefiting from the boost to customer numbers, resulting from specialising in goods people want to inspect before buying, such as carpets. My group business correspondent, Mark Williamson. Remember, this weekly digest programme is just a selection of what we produce. You can access more daily content online for free at qnreview.com forward slash free podcasts. For free daily podcasts of the Herald Scotland and Evening Times and weekly digests of the National and Inside Soap magazine. Alternatively, you can access all of these services via a BWBF Sonata Plus internet radio player. Now, back to the main programme. The Evening Times, 25th of April 2019. Scottish teachers teaching three courses at the same time. 
The Scottish Parliament Education Committee heard controversial trial-level teaching was a growing problem, with concerns that led to lower standards. Last summer, the Herald revealed schools across Scotland had more than seven hundred vacancies just weeks before the new school year. The research showed shortages in key subject areas such as science, maths, computing, language, and home economics, as well as rural areas. William Hardy, the policy advice manager for Royal Society of Edinburgh, told the committee multi-course teaching was a particular issue in science. He said whilst courses may have similar titles, a national four in physics will be very different from a national five course in physics, but quite often they'll be taught together, which can obviously impact on the quality of teaching if a teacher has got to teach quite different classes. Sometimes that can be exacerbated by having teaching national four and national five and higher in the same class. This obviously touches on the difficulty of recruiting subject specialist teachers, particularly in the sciences and computer science, which means that in some schools, multi-course teaching may well be the only way the school can timetable those courses to allow them to run. Professor Jim Scott from the School of Education at Dundee University said the extent of which tri-level teaching was now prevalent was a major concern. He said it tends to be prevalent in minority subjects or in smaller schools, but as a genuine issue, I mean, for science it should be a no, but it does seem to be prevalent in quite a lot of smaller subjects. It seems to be a grown problem. Some sources indicate this is down to local authority staffing levels. Some of them indicate it is a head teacher or senior management team's view of a curriculum, and some say it comes from a principal teacher who wants to do this. And make space and time. Labour MSP John Anamut asked to what extent the requirement for multi-level teaching was built into teacher training to ensure staff were equipped for practice. Dr. Alan Britton, senior lecturer in education at Glasgow University, said initial teacher education did what it could to prepare teachers for the different scenarios they could encounter. He said we prepare them as best as we can. And if we have a subject specialist in secondary, then we will try to prepare them for the reality of multi-level teaching. Would any teacher actively choose to construct their teaching and learn in that way? The reality is that most teachers, if given a choice between multi-level teaching or not, they would want it. The warning comes after a survey by the Scottish Secondary Teachers Association found 47% of members were teaching classes containing pupils aiming at two different qualifications and a quarter had pupils studying three. A separate study in 2017 by the Royal Society of Chemistry found 73% of National 5 chemistry classes had pupils studying for other qualifications and 21% of hires being taught a multi-course. Asked how well they felt able to support pupils in multi-course classes, 70% of teachers in National 4 and National 5 classes responded either not well or not very well. MSPs also heard concerns over evidence given at the last committee meeting by Gail Gorman, the new Chief Executive of Curriculum and Inspiration Body Education Scotland. She said earlier this month that the link between an area's wealth and a number of higher subjects on offer was not a big concern as some thought. This was because extra government funding for schools in disadvantaged areas where pupils can travel to other schools to set a wider range of subject qualifications were proven effective. 
Mr. Scott said, "I have to say I was surprised. I found myself wondering if I lived in the same educational world." Mr. Hardy added, "If education Scotland is simply saying there's no link and not sustaining, that then it may be in an area this committee may want to follow up with them to see if I have data which shows a different answer." Article from Herald Scotland, twenty third of April, twenty nineteen, News. Scottish gun crime falls to record low. Scottish gun crime has hit a record low. New government figures showed there were just under an offence involving a firearm every day in both 2016-17 and 2017-18. Crucially, the number of people either hurt or killed by a gun going off fell to 41 last year. Scotland suffered a single homicide involving a firearm in 2016-2017 and another two in 2017-2018. There were eight attempted murders involving a firearm in 2016-17 and ten in 2017-18. The numbers, which include a period of tit-for-tat gangland shooting in Glasgow, came before the suspected murder of Edinburgh gym owner Bradley Welsh last week. The fall in record gun crime comes despite police intelligence suggesting gangsters have easier access to firearms across the UK. Late last year, Assistant Chief Constable Steve Johnson of Police Scotland said there were now so many weapons available that criminals could afford to fire their weapons, then throw them away. A firearm, he said, used to be a precious commodity, so people did not want to lose it. He added, "So it would be used by one person and then stored away, and then it would be used again." That meant ballistics would show a single gun used in multiple crimes. The shooter potentially would be a different person, Mr. Johnson explained. Guns were so rare they were kept; they were multi-use. That helped law enforcement track and link crimes. Recorded crime only picks up those cases involving weapons that come to the attention of the police, including sources usually insist almost all shootings. An official statistical bulletin issued by the Scottish government said that in 2017-18, the police in Scotland recorded 348 offences in which a firearm was alleged to have been involved, a decrease of 1% from 2016-17, 350 offences, and 13 from 2015-16, 402 offences. Scotland's chief statistician. Issued the bulletin after a review of how firearms data is recorded, the bulletin said that any direct comparison with previously published statistics for the period prior to 2015-2016 would not provide a reliable measure of change, as earlier figures may have underestimated the number of offences involving firearms. However, number crunchers are confident that the number of Offences in which a, a firearm was alleged to have been involved in 2017-18 was lower than in any other year since the current data collection began in 1980. Cabinet Secretary for Justice Humza Yousaf said these figures show we are continuing to make progress in tackling firearms misuse, with offences now at their lowest level for any single year since 1980. While firearm offences are rare, we know that just one incident can have a devastating impact on victims and the wider community. So we are determined to continue working with our partners to reduce these numbers. 
Having successfully lobbied to have the relevant powers devolved to the Scottish Parliament, we are the only part of Great Britain to license air weapons, ensuring that only those with a legitimate need have lawful access to them. Since our licensing legislation was passed in 2015-16, offences involving an air weapon have fallen by a third. This is testament to the hard work of Police Scotland and partners in introducing the new licensing regime. The most commonly committed offences involving a firearm in 2017-18 were possession of a firearm with intent to endanger life, commit crime, etc., 18%, breach of the peace, etc., 17%, and common assault, 14%. The number of offences in which a firearm was discharged and caused fatal or non-fatal injury decreased by 2 or 5% from 43 in 2016-17 to 41 in 2017-18. An air weapon was the main firearm used in 36% of all offences, including the alleged involvement of a firearm in 2017-18, followed by a pistol, 11%, and a shotgun, 7%. The Glasgow Herald... 25th of April 2019. Opinion from the 23rd of April. Obituary. Cecilia McEwen, Scottish aristocrat known for charity work in Thailand and Bosnia. Born October 27th, 1937. Died March 30th, 2019. Cecilia McEwen, who has died aged 81, worked tirelessly for numerous charities both in Scotland and abroad. She committed much of her time and energy to helping leprosy patients in Thailand and in the 60s she spearheaded a campaign to transport medicines to aid those suffering from the disease while serving as a leprosy missionary in a hospital in Chiang Mai. She ventured further into the jungle and worked under much pressure and considerable discomfort in Khon Kaen province. She returned to assist at the hospital for several years. Indeed, she only stopped returning when the Vietnam War endangered civilian life and the American bombing of the Ho Chi Minh Trail in Laos was uncomfortably close to the mission. McEwen was strongly advised by the British ambassador to leave the region immediately. McEwen was a pillar of one of the oldest families in Scotland. Her marriage in 1960 to Alexander McEwen, fourth son of a well-known Borders family, brought her into a society long connected with Scotland. Her father-in-law, Sir John McEwen of Marchmont, was a Conservative Westminster MP who served as a Treasury Minister in the Churchill wartime government. Her husband's family, consisting of five brothers and a sister, were considered a glamorous Scottish version of the Kennedy family in the US. Countess Cecilia Leontine Mary Griffin Weikersheim was the only child of an historic branch of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. She was brought up in Kent, where she often had to take shelter from the German V-1 rockets flying in the direction of London. She was privately educated and was a talented linguist, fluent in French, German and Italian, and passable in Spanish and Thai. In 1960, she met and married Alexander McEwen, often known by his nickname of Eck, while skiing in the Alps. The two made their principal home firstly in the borders, then at Bardrochet House in Ayrshire, overlooking the Stinchar Valley. They proved wonderful hosts and held weekend parties for many of the glamorous icons of the 1960s, such as Princess Margaret, Bob Dylan and Terence Stamp. 
Her husband and his brother Rory had become celebrities in the burgeoning music scene in London and were among the first folk singers to appear on television performing nightly on the BBC early evening magazine programme Tonight, presented by Cliff Mitchellmore. They sang a mixture of Scottish ballads and topical songs often written by Bernard Levin and often delightfully irreverent. They also sang Gaelic songs of some of the programmes which they recorded, notably Scottish songs and ballads, which was released on the Folkways label. The brothers toured America extensively and appeared twice, a rare honour only equalled by the Beatles and Elvis Presley on The Ed Sullivan Show. McEwen supported her husband in his musical career, but also had a fine eye for interior design. She made Bancroft House a homely and comfortable place for the entire family, often rummaging through local antique shops and junkyards. In 1965, her husband left the folk business and joined John Menzies, the Edinburgh newsagent and bookshop. The couple were to live in a variety of houses before settling latterly at Columnell, Ayrshire. McEwen was a popular figure in the Borders and Ayrshire. She was a keen follower of sporting activities in the area, especially shooting and hunting. She was for several years a member of the Eglinton Hunt and served as its joint master. Margaret Muggs Montgomery remembers her as a stalwart member of the Eglinton. Cecilia was always immaculately turned out and was a superb horsewoman. She was a great asset to the hunt and much respected throughout the farming community. She was a delightful friend, loved the outdoors and the Scottish countryside. McEwen was brought up a devout Catholic. Her parents were related to senior lay officials in the Vatican and she went on several pilgrimages to Lourdes caring for the disabled. On her death, Pope Francis offered prayers for the repose of her soul. In the 1980s, she joined the Charitable Sovereign Military Order of Malta and, while the severe conflict in the Balkans erupted in the 1990s, she joined a Knights of Malta aid convoy to Bosnia. Despite official advice that it was too dangerous, she made the journey. It was a most hazardous and challenging mission and they were fired upon by snipers and had to take refuge in a cellar. To mark the bravery of her and her colleagues, she was made a Dame of the Grand Cross of the Sovereign Order of Malta. McEwen was a worshipper for many years at Sacred Hearts Jewish and Mary, Girvin. Her husband died in 2008. Cecilia McEwen is survived by their two sons and a daughter. This obituary was by Alistair Stephen. The Herald Scotland, Politics, recorded on the 25th of April 2019. Immediate threat to Theresa May's premiership lifted by UK political editor Michael Settle. The immediate threat to Theresa May's premiership has been lifted, but Tory colleagues have asked for a clear roadmap setting out her departure from office. Of head of steam building up, particularly from the Brexiteer faction, the executive of the Conservative backbench 1922 committee met for a second day running in the Commons to hear arguments for and against changing the rules on ousting a leader. In December, the Prime Minister saw off a bid to remove her by a margin of 200 to 117 in a vote of Tory MPs under party rules. This meant she could not be challenged for another 12 months. However, critics of her handling of Brexit have called for the grace period to be reduced to six months, which would allow for a second confidence vote to take place in June. Yet the officers of the committee finally came down against changing the party's rules. 
After the meeting, the 1922 chairman, Sir Graham Brady, said he believed the issue had now been settled for the foreseeable future. While he said the committee had rejected calls for a rule change, the Cheshire MP pointed out it was always open to colleagues to write to him as chairman to raise concerns, including ones about the party leadership, and that the strength of opinion would be communicated by me to the leader of the party, should he decide to do so. Sir Graham further explained that the 1922 had decided, following Mrs May's decision a few weeks ago, to set out a clear schedule for departure as leader of the party in the event of the withdrawal agreement being passed, to seek similar clarity from her should this not happen. The 1922 executive is asking on behalf of the Conservative Party in Parliament that we should have a clear roadmap forward, he added. As on Brexit, the party is divided over how long Mrs May should stay on for. Former Deputy Speaker Nigel Evans, a member of the 1922 executive, has publicly called for the PM to go as soon as possible. But Matt Hancock, the UK Health Secretary, argued, changing the PM will not change what we need to do to deliver Brexit. We should get on and deliver Brexit. Richard Harrington, the former business minister who quit over the prospect of a no-deal Brexit, agreed, saying a leadership election now would be disastrous for the party. One senior Tory at the 1922 meeting described how a succession of MPs called for an end to squabbling during the ongoing campaign for the local elections in England on May the 2nd. Many Conservatives fear their party will suffer heavy losses at this poll and also in the May 23rd European elections should they take place with Nigel Farage's new Brexit party being the main beneficiary of the Tory slide. One noted the end of May could see the end of May. By UK political editor Michael Settle. Q and Review Print Speaking to the Blind are a charity based in Bishop Briggs. We're currently looking to recruit volunteer access to audio ambassadors in eastern Bartonshire to place leaflets and business cards at businesses, shops and amenities in the area and to show the public how to listen to daily and weekly online articles from the Herald Scotland, Evening Times, The National and Inside Soap magazine for free. If you would like to volunteer and become an Access to Audio Ambassador, please contact Michael Rankin on 0141 772 3976 or email aaatl at com. That's aaatl at com. In addition, we are also recruiting for volunteer readers and technicians. If you're interested in reading or technically supporting a recording team, please contact us on 0141-772-3976 or email information at qreview.com. Details of all of our volunteering opportunities are available on our website at qreview.com. Thank you. Now, back to the main programme. Almost half of major Scottish infrastructure deals delayed by Tom Gordon, Scottish political editor, published in the Herald Scotland of Tuesday the 23rd of April 2019. Almost half of the Scottish Government's major building projects have been delayed, with prisons suffering the biggest hold-ups. An official update showed 25 of 55 projects rescheduled or delivered late since an infrastructure plan in September. Although half a dozen were just a few days late, others had slipped years behind Sergio. 
redevelopment of the Royal Edinburgh Hospital campus was delayed 15 months to April 2022, and a new healthcare centre in Clyde Bank was delayed 11 months to June 2021. A new £170 million prison for Glasgow was pushed back a year to October 2024. A £74 million prison for Inverness was delayed 18 months to March 2023. And the £75 million replacement of Greenock Prison was delayed two years to October 2024. There was also delays of several months for works on the A737 and A77 in Ayrshire and a year's delay to a £15 million revamp of health and care in Skye, Loch and South West Ross. Labour MSP Colin Smythe said it's not just the trains the SNP can't run on time. Major infrastructure projects have been pushed back under this government. Infrastructure investment should be what is powering our economy from the ground up, creating good quality direct jobs, further work in the supply chain and ultimately better public services. But under the SNP, projects are too often behind schedule and handed to companies who aren't delivering good quality work. Labour would ensure public contracts and major projects deliver best value for the taxpayer and a better deal for working people. Infrastructure Secretary Michael Matheson said more than £1.4 billion was invested in infrastructure projects opened across Scotland in 2018-19, including the V&A Museum in Dundee, 62 miles of newly electrified rail line from Dunblane through Stirling and Alloa, and 19 new schools. He added... Looking ahead, the Scottish Government's £5 billion commitment to infrastructure investment in 2019-20 will support 50,000 affordable new homes, delivery of the extension of early learning and childcare, new roads and railways, electric vehicles and delivery of super-fast broadband across Scotland. As part of this, our pipeline report shows Scottish Government procured projects with a value of almost £3.1 billion are estimated to be in construction across Scotland during 2019-20. The Herald Scotland. Politics. Recorded on the 25th of April 2019. Voices for Scotland. Civic Group to launch to help boost support for Scottish independence. From the Herald Scotland Online. A new pro-independence group is being launched in Edinburgh, tasked with getting the support for Scottish independence to over 50%. The new civic campaign body, Voices for Scotland, will be launched this morning in Edinburgh by SIC convener Elaine C. Smith, accompanied by members of the board appointed to run the new group. The body, which has been launched the day after Nicola Sturgeon set out her plans for a potential second referendum, is to be headed up by long-term independence supporter Chris Hegarty, with Elaine C. Smith on the board alongside former MSP Dave Thompson. Ms. Smith, who chairs the SIC, said, The UK is in the middle of a political crisis, and we're launching because, important as the views of politicians are, there are many more voices in Scotland which need to be heard as we debate our future. About a third of those voices are definite independent supporters, and about a third are definitely not. 
We're all about opening conversations with the third of people who are in the middle, who are undecided or are doubting their previous opinions. The new body is largely funded by small donations from the public. Its board members include Green's co-leader Maggie Chapman and human rights lawyer Amar Anwar. But Pamela Nash, Chief Executive of Scotland and Union, said this is yet another anti-UK campaign group that will only be talking to a minority of people in Scotland. Regardless of how many campaigns to leave the UK are established, they will be unable to produce a positive vision for breaking up the UK because there isn't one. The majority of people in Scotland know we are stronger together and want the SNP and its allies to drop plans for a divisive and unwanted second independence referendum. From the Herald Scotland Online. For Herald, 25th of April 2019. Scotland faces a £1 billion bill to send rubbish to England and overseas after landfill ban. Experts said the lack of waste treatment capacity north of the border will create a shortfall of up to 1.28 billion tonnes of rubbish, which must be dealt elsewhere. Scottish Tory Shadow Environment Secretary Morris Golden said it was blatantly obvious that this target was nothing but an SNP gimmick. This damning report shows that the target is rightly off schedule, and what's even more worrying is the cost to Scotland's economy of its catastrophic misjudgment could be more than £1 billion. Everyone accepts progress has to be made when it comes to recycling and disposing of waste, but the SNP have run out of ideas on how to do this. Our oceans are filled with waste, with plastic and other waste, which could easily have originated in Scotland. A report by Unama Research and Consulting, which was commissioned by the Scottish Government, found nine councils representing 23.6% of household waste have no alternative arrangements in place ahead of a ban. Meanwhile, three authorities have long-term solutions in place, but nothing short-term, and six have had the opposite problem. This is despite the significant notice given with the landfill ban announced in 2012. Enormous modelling found there would be insufficient residential waste treatment capacity due to Scotland's rubbish. The extent of the gap will depend on the level of recycling received. If current targets are met, Scotland is one cause for a shortfall of 1.1 million tonnes of treatment capacity in 2021, compared to the amount of rubbish produced. If recycling rates remain, the same but waste generation increases. This shortfall grows to 1.28 million tonnes and will still be 1.15 million tonnes by 2035. The report adds, excluding consideration of waste minimisation and recycling a ban will result in significant economic costs to Scotland due to the need to export an increased amount of residual waste, whether an interim solution until new thermal treatment capacity comes online or as a long-term solution. This has the effect of exporting revenue to English or continual landfill or treatment of providers. However, the ban will lead to an overall environment benefit to Scotland, report found. However, the ban will lead to an overall environmental benefit to Scotland, report found. While the greater recycling rate can be achieved, the smaller the amount of residual waste that will need to be managed, lengthening the economic impact upon Scotland. Economic modelling found the worst-case scenario would see Scotland hit with costs of £1.16 billion to deal with the ban, with £1.13 billion of this failing on councils. The best-case scenario would see the costs of £414 million. But the authors noticed that the economic and environmental boost expected from the rise of residue and recycling was not reflected in the results.
Malcolm Todd of West Industry Consultancy Firm MT Consulting insisted Scotland has a moral duty to deal with our own waste. Scottish Liberal Democrat leader Willie Rennie said it would make a mockery of the law if the SNP's solution to meeting our own landfill ban is to ship it to England or abroad. Thank you for listening to this week's edition of the Herald Scotland. This weekly talking newspaper digest was a Q&Review recording service production. The readers were volunteers at Q&Review and the producer was Jordan Duncan. Q&Review Recording Service Limited is a registered Scottish charity. Number SC018016. Our registered office is at 18 Crowhill Road, Bishop Briggs, Glasgow, G641QY. Remember, you can always get in contact with us by email at information at qandreview.com or by leaving us a message on our answering service at 0141 772 3976.